Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 10:23 through 11:1. Hear the word of the Lord. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat what is ever sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved." Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Mike, if I haven't met you before, and I'm really glad that you're all here this morning. Um, I don't get to do this very much anymore, but when I was in college, I really loved to go hiking. Not quite as advanced as some of the folks we have around here, but uh, there's something really just there's a great sense of accomplishment finishing a hike, especially when it ends on top of a mountain, right? I really loved hiking. Um, one of my favorite hikes that I've ever done is in Zion National Park, which is kind of in the southwest corner of Utah. Um, and it's called Angel's Landing, and it finishes at a, a summit that comes out over a canyon. And here's a, a picture of what it looks like from the top of Angel's Landing. It is just breathtaking from about 1,500 feet up. Loved this hike. Now, what's challenging about this hike is actually in the about quarter mile or so that leads up to the summit. Because in that stretch, the path gets really thin. Like really, really thin. In some places, the path is only about five feet wide. Here's a picture of that just to give you an idea of what we're talking about. You can see that there's a chain that runs along it. Hikers are meant to hold this chain as they're walking because on either side of this path, which is five feet wide is a drop that goes over a 1,000 feet straight down. It was only after I finished this hike that I told my mom anything about it. (laughs) If I had told her about it before I left, I would be locked in her basement to this day. Um, Well, some of you know this. A lot of you know this. But not every part of the Christian life has a verse, has a portion in Scripture, has a message from Jesus directly about it. We call these things gray areas because it's kind of difficult for us to see what is right and wrong if the authors of Scripture or Jesus haven't spoken directly to it. And as we seek to navigate these gray areas, it can be really a lot like the last 500 yards of Angel's Landing, a thin path with a steep and deadly drop on either side. On one side of the path, uh, we can call it legalism. For the legalist, these gray areas are an opportunity to accidentally offend God. We could always be accidentally making God mad. And so in order to protect ourselves, we're going to build all these rules and create all these rules to kind of fill in the gaps that God left um, when he gave his rules. 
And this person tends to find their peace before God in the fact that they've kept all their own rules so they know that they're safe. On the other side of the path is a fall that we can call license. As the name suggests, this group of people would just assume throw away every rule that is in Scripture, whether it's explicit or not. Look, Jesus died for all my sins, right? And I could never keep the law as perfectly as he did. Well, clearly, and, and, and throughout the history of the church, really, Christians have tended to fall towards one of these two extremes. But clearly, neither of them are a satisfying response to the question, how are we supposed to navigate these gray areas? How are, how are we supposed to act when Jesus and the authors of Scripture haven't told us how to act? Is there a third way? Is there a chain that will lead us up the path to the destination? Well, the good news is that we're not the first people to ever uh, address or, or encounter gray areas in our lives. In fact, we're going to see in our text today that these have been in existence ever since the very first generation of Christians. Uh, if you're new here today, I just want to let you give you a little context of where we've been. We're in a series called A Beautiful Mess, and it's what we're calling the church, right? It's a beautiful mess. And in this series, we've been walking through a letter that was written a long time ago to a small urban church plant, very much like uh, the one we are in now from their planting pastor, from their founding pastor. And even though we call this 1 Corinthians, uh, we're not, it's not actually the first letter that was exchanged between these two. We're stepping into the middle of a conversation, and it's important to remember that. Because, for instance, today, we're going to look at a passage in which the planting pastor, Paul, is responding to a letter he received from this church. And it's a question particularly about one of these gray areas. And in this gray area, there's a lot of, to put it lightly, disagreement going on in this church. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bible apps or in your print Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, I know we had chapter 10 read for us, but we're going to jump around a little bit today just to give you a heads up, so we'll be ready for that. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's on page 956. It's on page 956. And as you're turning there, I just want to give you a little bit of context, just kind of set the table, if you will. Um, for what's going on. What's the issue that this church is arguing about? Well, it turns out, it turns out that the Corinthian church is obsessed with the origin of their food. And we can identify with this, can't we? I mean, nowadays, you've got to figure out everything you buy. Is it, or, is it organic? Is it grass-fed? Is it cage-free? Is it antibiotic-free? Is it no water added? Is it free-range? If so, how big was the range on which it was free? Did you tuck it in at night? Did you read it stories? Do read a good night moon? I love good night moon. We are so obsessed with the origin of our food. But the issue facing the Corinthian church is a little bit different than that, but it does surround the origin of their meat. You see, especially in a city like Corinth, there are temples all over the place built to idols, and worship services going on all the time to these idols, and a part of those services was almost always the sacrifice of an animal. So when the service is over, you've got all this excess meat from having sacrificed this animal, and either you could serve it in the temple as kind of like a celebration meal for that idol, or you could sell it to vendors who would then take it to the marketplace and sell it to those who wanted to take meat home and prepare it. So just imagine the next time you're in a grocery store, you see this uh, organic, no-water-added chicken was likely killed as a sacrificial uh, sign of worship to an idol. So the question for the church arose, should we be eating this stuff? I mean, is this stuff okay for us to eat? Now, one group wasn't so sure it was a good idea. In fact, they worried there was a possibility that if they ate this food, they would be kind of inadvertently, by extension, worshiping 
these idols. So just to be sure, they built this rule and said, no, we can't eat this meat. If you're a Christian, you can't eat this meat. Don't eat this meat. The other side wasn't so pumped about losing their opportunity to eat meat, understandably so. So this side writes a letter to Paul and asks him to weigh in. They kind of lay out their argument and says, hey, Paul, come on, tell us we can eat this meat, right? And so chapter 8, verse 1, finally now, after weeks and weeks and weeks of reading this letter, they get to hear Paul's response. And so let's listen in together with the Corinthian church and hear Paul's response to this question. He starts off, chapter 8, verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now you might see in your text quotes around that last phrase. Um, This is important because as best we can tell, Paul is quoting the letter that the Corinthians wrote to him. And this is going to happen a couple times in our passage, so just be aware that that is, is what's going on. Verse 2, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Here's what Paul is saying. This knowledge alone, it only provides the illusion of growth, not growth itself. The Christian who is actually growing in their faith and growing in maturity is the one whose life is founded on love. This knowledge alone, it only provides the illusion of growth. Now, what's Paul talking about when he says that? Because obviously we're not going to reject all knowledge as inherently bad. Jesus commands us to love God with all of our minds. So what's Paul talking about? Well, you'll notice that he says this knowledge. Not just knowledge in general, but this knowledge. What he's saying here is this. If knowledge alone is your goal, If you think that to grow as a Christian means to think rightly about God and then impose that knowledge on others, then that person who does this deceives themselves into thinking that they're a mature Christian. It's just the illusion of growth. Instead, Paul offers the third way. Because much to the surprise of both both the legalist and the licensed crowd, he doesn't tell either of them that they're right. But he offers this third way. And this is the point, this is the point of the whole passage that we're going to read today, so it's really important that we carry this away. He says this, the goal of the Christian life is to love like God loves. The goal of the Christian life is to love like God loves. It isn't to figure out all the rules that God forgot to put in the Bible. It isn't to throw out all the rules altogether because we can't figure it out. It's actually not about rules at all. It's about learning how to love like God loves. It's the goal of the whole Christian life. So how does God's love work itself out in this issue of food sacrifice to idols? Well, we're going to keep reading in this passage. This is going to be a great illustration for how this principle applies to our lives. So let's head back to the text, verse 4. Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Again here, you probably see those quotes. Here Paul is quoting back The letter, again, this is the argument of the licensed crowd, of the meat-eating crowd. They're saying, look, we know that an idol is nothing. We know that there's only one God and one Lord, so it is nothing to eat food that is sacrificed to nothing. So we can eat this, right? This is their argument. This is why they say they can eat this meat. Paul goes on in verse 5, For although there there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, in other words, look around you, there are temples everywhere, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now this is stunning. 
Paul, the Pharisee, the legalist of all legalists, is actually telling them they're right. They can eat this food. You're, you're thinking rightly about this. There is only one God. There, there, there are no idols. There are, there's no such thing as an idol. They're not real gods. And so you've got to imagine this meat-eating crowd, the licensed crowd, is starting to high-five, chest bump, fist bump. You know, it's like their team just won in March Madness or something. They're going nuts because they get to eat the meat. And, but over the shouts of victory, you can almost hear the reader of the letter raise his voice to say the next word, which is the worst word the meat-eating crew could hear. However, 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 that's not the end of the story. Paul goes on in verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, look, if you think that because you got this figured out and you're right, that you're a mature Christian or something and you've got to impose your knowledge on these folks, you are way off. You see, our life is not about how we relate to some objective set of rules that we've got to figure out. Our life is about, as Christians, how we relate to others around us. And others around these Christians in Corinth are folks who last year, last month, maybe even last week, were right in these temples, eating this meat, really worshiping these idols, thinking they were real gods. And to eat meat around them is at best a reminder of all their past sins or at worst an irresistible temptation to fall back into their old ways. To eat this meat around these folks is a lot like inviting someone who has wrestled with alcoholism to your wine tasting dinner because you think it's okay to drink wine. Now, I want to pause here for a second um, because Paul is mainly addressing the quote stronger brother and sister is what he calls them here. Um, They're the ones who wrote the letter to him. Um, He calls the other group the weaker brother and sister, which is a little bit awkward because they're there listening to this letter being read. It's kind of like, okay, that's kind of a low blow. Um, He doesn't address them directly, but I want to take a second um, to do that right now because there are people here this morning who legitimately worry every moment of their life carries the weight of falling out of God's favor. And for that person... A Christian life that isn't bound up and laden with rules upon rules upon rules is an unthinkable thing. So I want to be clear about something this morning that I hope will help set aside some of those anxieties. If you're a Christian, the way God feels about you is 100% bound up in the life Jesus Christ lived on your behalf. Look, set all the rules you want to set. You will never be good enough to earn God's good feeling, much less your salvation. But because Jesus already did it on your behalf, you don't have to worry about how God feels about you. God feels about you if you are in Christ the same way he feels about his son in whom he is well pleased. So while we need to pay special attention to certain temptations in our life that are extra difficult for us, as you approach these gray areas, which can tend to be really paralyzing, I want to encourage you to have that gospel be preached into the depths of those feelings and to know that you are safe with God because of what Jesus has earned for you. Okay? Okay, aside over, back to the text. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 8. So there are all sorts of people in this congregation who don't share this knowledge. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God, we are no worse off if we do eat. Uh, excuse me. Uh, we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off 
if we do. Look, food is immaterial. This licensed crowd, this meat-eating crowd, they need to hear that if they engage their freedom to eat this meat, they are no closer to God for doing so. They are no closer to God for doing so. Now also notice that Paul says, if you abstain from eating this meat for the purpose of fulfilling some unwritten rule, you are also no closer to God. Both are an illusion of growth. Both, neither provides actual growth and actual maturity. Paul goes on in verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and sisters in wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Look, here's the problem. If the pursuit of your Christian life is just to think rightly about God, is just to be right and to impose your rightness on others, here's the trap you can fall into. And this is the trap the Corinthians fell into. You can be right and have it all wrong. You can be right, you can think rightly, you can have the right knowledge about an issue and yet have it all wrong. Because it's not about thinking rightly about God. It's about how we relate to others. You see, this is this is just this was groundbreaking for me. This this community is is convinced whichever side they fall on that the rightness or wrongness of their action lies in how they think about it. If their knowledge about it is correct, their argument for why they can eat the meat or the argument for why they can't eat the meat is correct. Paul is saying that is not true at all. Look, whether or not you eat this meat, it's totally a matter of preference. Eat it or don't. The rightness or the wrongness of the action lies on the effect it has on your brother and sister in Christ. Let me say that again. The rightness or wrongness of your action lies in the effect that it has on your brother or sister in Christ. This was groundbreaking for me, and it's a totally new paradigm as we think about how to live out the Christian life, as we think about engaging this third way, which is learning to love like God loves. And now Paul, one who fully understands and embraces his freedom to eat this meat, he finishes this issue by saying in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now this translation doesn't do a great job of capturing the emphasis of this text. Just imagine Paul's like on the playground and he says, I will never, ever, 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 times infinity plus one, eat this meat. That's how strongly he's saying this. If the effect is detrimental on my brother or sister in Christ, I will never, ever, ever eat this meat. Because they're worth God's life to God, which means they're worth my freedoms too. This is the challenge that Paul has laid for them. The goal of the Christian life is not to think rightly about the things of God and then impose that knowledge on others. The goal of the Christian life is to love like God loves. And at this point, we're going to jump over to chapter 10, verse 23, and see how Paul applies this principle more broadly. And I'll be more quick in this section. In verse 23, again, in 10, verse 23, again, we see Paul quoting this letter back to them. They say all things are lawful. His response is, but not all things are helpful. Again, all things are lawful, and he responds, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, 
but the good of his neighbor. And that verse right there, 10 verse 24, that's the key to the whole ethic for the whole Christian life, the way we're supposed to live. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, at this point, some of us might be saying, wait a minute, the whole Christian life? Have you seen how thick the Bible is? I mean, what about the laws that God actually does give us? What about the 10 really big ones in the Old Testament? And then after that, there's like 600 more. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament, and he gives a sermon that's really long and has all sorts of rules in it. What about all those? I mean, what about all these laws that God actually does give to us? Well, Jesus himself resolves that tension for us. You see, he was asked by some of his religious enemies who were trying to trap him, hey, Jesus, of all these hundreds and hundreds of laws, which, which is the greatest? Which one's the most important? And listen to how he responds. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the sentence that I think sometimes, at least I, tend to miss how, how big of a statement this is. I mean, these are the kind of statements that got Jesus killed. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the law. The whole thing. Every single time we're given a law, it's meant to illustrate how we would love like God loves. So whether or not Jesus or the author of scriptures speak directly to a situation, the principle stands, the goal of the Christian life is to love like God loves. And if that's the only thing that you know, then you're on a path to maturity that even the smartest among us might be nowhere near. The goal of the Christian life is to love like God loves. It's the person whose life is increasingly identified by loving others in the same way they were loved by God who is growing in the maturity of their faith. So Paul summarizes the whole thing in chapter 10, verse 31, when he says, so whether you eat or drink, or really whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. And what, what gives God glory? What makes God look good? It's when his people loves, when his people love like he loves. It's when his people embody the gospel, the good news of just how much God loves them and God loves the world. It's when his people put the interests of their neighbors above their own. This is the goal of the Christian life, to love like God loves. So to help make this a little bit more concrete for us, uh, I want to offer us a question that if we ask it when we're faced with these gray areas will very greatly help us as we navigate through some of the more difficult areas of our lives. This is a question I've adapted from Pastor Andy Stanley, um, who just has a great way with words, and um, so I tried not to reinvent what he has already done, and it's, it's really good stuff. Um, and when you face a situation, you don't know what to do, you don't know what the way forward is, what's God's will for me? Ask this question and seek out the answer to this question, and I believe it will really um, steer you well. And here's what it is. What does God's love require of me? What does God's love require of me? Whatever situation you're in, you don't know what the way forward is, you don't know how I should act in this situation, there's not really a verse for that in the Bible, ask the question, what does God's love require of me? And I just want to take a quick look at three gray areas that face us commonly and see how this question guides us through, and then we'll wrap it up, okay? The first one is alcohol. 
Very often in the history of the church, especially the church in this country, we have been hung up on what the biblical mandate is for how we can consume alcohol or if we can at all. Now, here's my best understanding of it. Uh, no, let me rephrase that. The authors of Scripture and Jesus himself never, ever, ever say that drunkenness is acceptable. To become drunk is, is, is something that is never acceptable for the Christian life. But the authors of Scripture, as much as I have read and as much of the scholarship I've read, it seems like the moderated consumption of alcohol is perfectly acceptable for the Christian life. Now, is my goal to take that knowledge and impose it on everybody else, no matter where they come from, no matter what their context is, force everybody to just start drinking alcohol but moderated, because that's what Christians can do, and you've got to get on board with this ethic. No. No, what I do instead is ask myself, every time I have the opportunity, what does God's love require of me? God's love requires me to know the people around me, to know those who have struggled with alcoholism, or who have been touched by the ill effects of alcoholism. To know those who legitimately think that any consumption of alcohol is sinful. And by seeing me take, it, take alcohol would be compelled to do something they think would be detrimental to their relationship with God. And in those scenarios, God's love requires me to restrict my freedom for the good of others. Next. This is a debate that is not quite as hot in the church now as it was maybe about a decade ago, but it still has a lot of implications for us, and it surrounds the style of music we sing uh, in our worship services, or, or more generally, just how do we organize our worship services. Um, people have actually tried to do this, but there is no place in the Bible that says whether or not we're supposed to have an organ, robes, and a choir, or electric guitar, drums, and a fog machine. Okay? Those are extremes, I get it. But that's not actually in the Bible. There is no place that tells us exactly how uh, we're supposed to organize our worship services. Now, does that mean then that whatever service makes me comfortable, whatever service has been right for me my whole life, is the one that I need to impose on other people? Look, this is how we do it at this church, and there are other churches, so you can go to the other church if you don't like how we sing at this church. Is that the posture we should take? Bless you. No. The posture we take is one where we ask the question, what does God's love require of me? God's love requires me to recognize the global reality of our church is one in which people come to worship God from many cultures and contexts and backgrounds. God's love requires me to be a safe place for any person to come and worship God, regardless of their cultural background or context. In those situations... God's love requires me to restrict my freedom to sing all the songs that I want to sing and I'm comfortable with singing so that anybody who might come and worship God here would feel welcome and at home. And if we want to be a campus that reflects the reality of our neighborhoods around us, this is a crucial, crucial first step for us. And it's one we think about all the time and are working on. What does God's love require of me? Okay, last one. This one is related to something that happened about 10 days ago. Um, within the last about two weeks, we had our first candidate officially declare his intention to be the next president of the United States, which means for the next 20 or so months, the political gloves are coming off. Anybody else excited about that? Um, so now, how do I interact with a person who is so clearly wrong in their political views because they disagree with me? Do I impose my vast knowledge 
of the political system on them? Do I convert them to my side of the aisle to get them to vote the way I want to vote because it's what's best for this country? Well, no. Instead, I ask myself the question, what does God's love require of me? God's love requires me to value the eternal, which is the person with whom I disagree, over the temporary, which is the outcome of these elections. God's love requires me to listen first in humility, believing the other person could actually be right. I know. God's love requires me to care more for this other person. And here's something, I'm serious about this. God's love requires me to filter what I post on Facebook or Twitter, not through what is going to be a crushing blow to the other side, but through what effect will it have on the name of Christ and my brothers and sisters in Christ for whom Christ died who disagree with me. What does God's love require of me? Look, we could go on and on and on with examples of how this works out, Um, but the gist of it is the goal of the Christian life is to love like God loves. And if that's the case, then in every minute of every day, we ought to be asking ourselves, what does God's love require of me? And I'll close with this. There's no place that God's love is more better shown to us than on the cross. There's no place that we see just how much God loves us than on the cross. This week, we're going to take special time and have special services to remember this ultimate act of love. And when Jesus answered this question, what does God's love require of me, which is for him more like, what does my love require of me, but what does God's love require of me? When he answered this question, it led him up a dangerous path to a hill. And it was the hill on which he died, abandoned and alone, for you and for me. And aren't you glad he did? Aren't you glad that in the face of your sin and my sin, that his response was not to care about how it affected him, but instead to elevate our interests above his own? Aren't you glad that in humility he laid aside everything that goes along with being God and became a man? Aren't you glad that he cared more for your good and for my good than his own? And that he worked forgiveness for your sin in a way for you to be a part of his family? Every single day, we have the opportunity to live out our thankfulness for that act of love God showed to us by asking the question, what does God's love require of me? And living into it. Let's answer that question together. Let's do it for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ and for the good of a lost world who can be found by God's love. Let's pray. Our Father, we could, uh, we could never deserve your love. There's nothing we could do, no matter how many rules we set or interpretations we have, to earn what you have done for us on the cross, to save us from our sins. But Lord, as we accept that gift in gratitude, help us through the power and presence of your Spirit to embody and live out that love that you've shown to us. Help us as a community, as individuals, as community groups, as neighbors, family members, friends, and co-workers to carry your gospel both in word and deed into all of our places this week. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, uh, before Jesus went to the cross, he left behind for his followers a meal. 
And this meal is meant to be a tangible reminder for us of just how far God has gone to love us and just the kind of love we are meant to live out. Um, So here's the deal. If you're new around here, this is what we do um, for this part of our service as we take communion together. Uh, You don't have to be a member of our church to partake in communion with us, but we do ask that you um, would have professed Christ as your Lord and Savior. If that describes you, you'll stand, you'll come down the aisles around the front and out behind our two dividers over here to one of our two communion serving stations. Gather in groups of four to six, and you'll take the bread, which is all gluten-free, and dip it in the juice, and then together partake remembering what Christ has done for you. If you have a child with you this morning who has yet to profess Christ as their Savior, we ask that they not participate in this part of the service, but our servers would love to bless them in the same way Jesus did. If you're yet to profess Christ as your Savior, take this time um, to reflect and to pray and to think over uh, what you've heard and just how much God loves you, what he's done for you. But before we come to the table, let us remember that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.